Millen awoke with a start, gasping as her bloodshot eyes strove to enable her to see. The oppressive darkness surrounding her did not relent. Her heart was beating wildly, painfully, as if it wished for nothing more than to burst out of her chest. Moments passed before her grasp of reality returned, and when it did, a whimper escaped her lips. It was a sound born from the deepest, darkest depths of her being, where fear and hopelessness ruled supreme. She could still hear them, her family. Their screams echoed in her mind. Millen shook her head, reprimanding herself. She could not give in to despair. He was still breathing. By the gods, he was. He did so slowly, unevenly, but he was still breathing. She could hear him do so. The Midnight Lord had not taken her brother. Not yet. In triumph, however small, she reached into her belt pouch, finding the cold flame crystal with ease. She raised it up and began to rub her thumb over its smooth surface. The mysterious force inside of it woke, bathing the storage room with its azure light. The brightness made her flinch. Andre was resting against the wall by her side. His ashen face was covered with blood and grime. The wound at his wrist, inflicted by one of the creatures, looked as if it was festering. The flesh surrounding it was dark, pulsating, and secreting ink-like pus. His closed eyes stirred due to the light from the crystal. When they opened, Millen instantly knew that something was amiss. Something was wrong. She craned her neck in order to study her brother closer. It took her a moment to realize what it was. His eyes. His once forest green eyes had turned into orbs of utter blackness, the same as theirs, the same as the creatures. Her thoughts stilled, and so did her emotions. Then, everything inside of her shattered. She stood up from the hay-covered floor. She had fallen asleep with her short sword in her hand. As her grip of the hilt grew tighter, her knuckles turning white from the effort, she realized for the first time just how heavy the weapon was. More so now, when it mattered the most that it did not. Her brother mumbled, still not fully awake. I'm thirsty, Mill, he said weakly. His voice lowered into a hoarse whisper. It hurts. The light. It hurts. With a wordless wail, she spun around, plunging the blade into Andre's heart. If her actions surprised him, he did not show it. His head fell down, his chin coming to rest just below his throat. When Millen was certain that he was gone, her face contorted into a mask of anguish. She cried for the first time since it all began. She wept for them, for her family and friends, for all of those that had died. Yet it was for her brother she cried the most. Should have been me, she thought. Not my beautiful brother. Not him. Never him. Later, when her tears stopped, she began to wonder what her next step should be. The thought of ending her own life crossed her mind, but she decided against it, for she felt something else burning inside of her, burning even more profoundly than her sorrow. Rage. Before they took her, she wanted to slaughter as many of the monsters as she could. How much time had passed since she and her brother had fled down here? A few hours at most. Their parents' sacrifice had been in vain. With Andre now gone as well, she was the only one left, all alone. She knew she could never escape. There were too many of them. Her training with the militia could not change that fact. Her eyes swept across the room, from her brother's corpse, to the farming and building tools, to her father's hunting bow. She took it down from the wall. The quiver was nearby, albeit only with a few arrows left. She tried to count them using her fingers. Seven? Nine? Nine, yes, she thought. That sounds about right. 
Milton scoffed as she looked over the sickles and scythes, worthless as weapons, she knew. One of the pitchforks, however, could help her keep her distance from the creatures. She attached the quiver to her belt, slung the bow over her shoulder, and picked up one of the pitchforks. She knew she had to hurry. The cold flame crystal would not last much longer. Lastly, she went to withdraw the short sword from Andre's chest. His tan tunic, which had turned dark during the night from the black, oily smoke, was now soaked in crimson. Sobbing, she forced herself to pull the weapon free. Wiping the blood-soaked blade on her torn skirt, she turned towards the ladder, the only way in and out of the storage room. As she did, she thought she could hear something. She paused, listening intently. It sounded like footsteps, but not from above, from behind her. She turned around, only to see Andre moving towards her, or rather, the monster wearing his face. It stumbled towards her, showing no emotions, saying nothing. Its movements were slow and clumsy, as if it was uncertain on how to do so correctly. Millen screamed, not from terror, but rather fury. Rushing towards the monster, she aimed the pitchfork at its head. The prongs were sharp enough to dig deep into its flesh and force it backwards once more towards the wall. With a wet and sickening thud, its head was impaled thoroughly, trapping the creature. It flailed its arms uselessly, more keen on catching her than to remove the farming tool from its skull. Millen was horrified. She began to vomit again and again until there was nothing left in her stomach. Afterwards, she wiped her lips with the back of her hand, sensing the pungent taste lingering in her mouth. She stared straight into the creature's coal-black eyes. Unblinking, unfazed, it mirrored her actions. Millen fled then, hastily climbing to the top of the ladder, praying that the monster could not do the same. She opened the locked trap door and pushed it upwards, just enough so she could look outside. As she had suspected from the lack of heat, the barn had been unharmed by fire. She climbed up, her sword at the ready. Closing and locking the trapdoor behind her, Millen silently bid farewell to her brother. It was still dark outside. She looked around at the remains of her family's farmstead. Little more than ashes and ruins were left. How the fire had not spread to the barn, she would never know. With a sigh heavier than steel, Millen tried to detect any movement. That is, aside from the moon, hanging before the sun as if embracing it, climbing together up from the horizon. A most vile of omens, as if the ramblings of the village elders had at last been realized. It would be a long, dark night. Chapter 1 of Doubts and of Choices Raymond Larkell glared at the thick Mirkwood door leading to his father's study. He felt foolish for standing there, doing nothing, with his back turned to the Whitestone hallway. He had wondered at first why not a single guard had stood before him, or why nary a servant had bothered or fussed over him. 
His hair was still wild from his restless slumber, his jawline was unshaven, and he had yet to don his wedding clothes of Cethysian silk. The realization that his father must have sent them all away, tasked them all with more important duties, made Raymond pinch the bridge of his nose and exhale loudly. He tried to gather his chaotic thoughts. He had known for a long time that this day would come. That knowledge, however, had always been in the shadows, lurking in the back of his mind. Now that the day in question was here, Raymond knew he had no choice but to face it. Even so, he wanted answers, answers that only his father could provide him. And so he raised his clenched fist in order to knock. He stopped himself, shaking his head in dismay. Glancing over his shoulders, he looked at the carpets of silver and blue, orange and gold, at the numerous portraits that cluttered the walls. The faces of Larkhell's long gone stared back at him, their faces betraying no emotions in the dim light of the lit torches. Back then, the days had been brighter, Raymond knew. The sun had still shone. They must have had troubles of their own, of that he was certain, yet none of them were smiling. The thought made him grit his teeth and finally bang his fist thrice against the door. Father, are you in there? Raymond's question was laced with steel. I need to speak with you. A moment of silence passed before his father's simple reply could be heard. Enter. In doing so, Raymond welcomed the familiar smells of spilled ink and musty books, of bitter wine and sweet wildflowers that made its way into his nostrils. The room was warm, provided by the fire of the hearth and the scented candles. It was one of the tiniest rooms White Keep had to offer, at least on the uppermost floor, and sparsely decorated. A single desk carved from white stone dominated it. Four Mirkwood chairs with colorful saffron cushions stood nearby. On the furthermost wall were a pair of round windows with glass painted black inside them. By the wall on the opposite side of the hearth stood a tall bookcase, also made from Mirkwood. The High Lord himself sat behind the desk, looking down at a letter. A pile of similar parchments, a bottle of crimson-leaf wine, a tray with cups of metal and a calderish long candle were placed on the desk as well. The High Lord was a large, burly bear of a man, with long and unkempt snow-white hair. He was great, it was said, not only in spirit, but also in sheer size. His hands were massive, with long and thick fingers that without fail followed his commands. Telmund's bushy eyebrows, that had always reminded Raymond of hairy caterpillars, were furrowed, and his mouth was a thin line. He was clad in simple clothes, a white shirt stained with wine, a pair of black trousers, and boiled leather boots. Surely you won't stand there all day, his father wondered, not even bothering to look up from the letter in his hands. Sit down. You're troubled over something, I can tell. Raymond did as his father suggested and sat down on one of the empty chairs in front of the desk. Despite the soft cushion upon it, Raymond sat stiffly, his arms crossed and his nose held high. His father didn't seem to notice nor care. Raymond felt more idiotic by the second and soon faltered. It was his father that once more broke the silence. Take a cup, Telman suggested, looking up with a lopsided grin on his weathered face. His large, hawk-like nose was pink, an effect of too many a cup, no doubt, and his beard, that matched his hair so well, had breadcrumbs in it. Perhaps it will help you find the words you seek. By the saints, I know that it helps me with that, and more. Raymond lifted up one of the ugly metal things and filled it with wine. Crimson Leaf was too bitter for his tastes under normal circumstances, yet he swiftly gulped it down before pouring himself another. His father looked on with a mixed expression. Really now, Tormund chuckled mirthlessly. There's no need for you to rush. 
You don't bother me, and there's plenty of time left, he added, nodding towards the notched long candle. Oh, yes, High Lord, Raymond said, his voice as bitter as he wanted it to be. Good. You're right, as always. He swallowed another mouthful as his father put down the letter. Telman's eyes grew sharp for a moment before returning to their soft ocean blue. I presume this is about the wedding? Indeed, father, Raymond replied. Worry not, I've bemoaned enough about it as it is. It will be done. But I haven't really given you the chance to tell me. Why? Why do I have to marry her? Why now? Why not her? Telmond asked. And if not now, when? You are nearly a man grown, Raymond, and this wedding of yours will bring much joy to the people. Because she's like a sister to me. I've known her all my life. I love her dearly, I do, but all the gold that you have spent on this ploy of yours? It could have been spent elsewhere. It should have been spent elsewhere. We still need to strengthen our control of the northern border. We still need to send out more patrols to ensure our people's safety. Hells, with that sum, we could have hired more cell swords, or at the very least relocated some of our soldiers from the more secure areas here in the east. What use have the dead of this joy you speak of, father? Telmond sat in utter silence for a moment, his expression conflicted. When he spoke, his voice was somber. You must try to look beyond yourself, and even those in need right now. I've sent as many able soldiers that we could muster where they are needed the most, but we lack trained men and women. And with Kristoff, Telman paused, seeming to chew on the words before spitting them out. Dead. We need this alliance more than ever. Our resources are waning. Our houses must join as one. The Anarians might not have as many soldiers as us, but they are better equipped, trained, and have more experience. While Lord Morgon might be skilled with swords and coins, he isn't the wisest or most diplomatic of men. As one, our houses can begin to reclaim more of Southmeth, and in time we can do all of these things that you just suggested. Morgon and I ask much of you, our children, and yet you have both agreed on it. You made that choice, and that makes me proud of you, more than you can begin to realize. Raymond lowered his head. What his father said made sense. House Anarion was one of the wealthiest houses left in Southmouth, and Eldna was of the right age. Yet aside from the great loss of Sword Captain Kristoff, former champion of House Larkel, had he truly failed to realize how dire their situation was? Had he been so self-absorbed in the past few weeks? I'm... I'm sorry, Father. I would have gone through with this regardless, as I said, but I pray that this will have the outcome that you desire. It is what we all desire, I hope, his father muttered his eyes returning to the parchments on his desk. This is all that we can do. Walk into the darkness and pray. Raymond, now clad in his white and golden wedding clothes, was looking at a letter of his own. He stood in the middle of his room, his hair still a mess, his chin still unshaven, briefly pondering if he should sit down. He had some time to spare, after all. He glanced over at his calderish long candle. Three hours. In the end, he thought better of it. It would accomplish nothing. He would never finish the letter. He looked over the written words, the stains of ink and tears and the lonesome burnt corner. He felt powerless, even more so than when his mother had left or when his brother went missing. That had been a recurring theme in his life, truth be told. That accursed feeling of being unable to do anything at all, knowing he could not betray the trust that both his father and Lord Anarion had put in him. He could not abandon his wife-to-be, he couldn't disregard everything he stood for or believed in, and yet, yet there was nothing more that he wished for right then and there. 
But that is not how this story goes, he thought bitterly, and it never shall. Who am I to wish otherwise? In the end, it wasn't even about that. The terrible feeling that would sting and pierce into him over and over again had more to do with his beloved, not himself. Raymond felt more tears welling up, but he refused to let them fall. Just outside of his window, he thought he caught sight of falling snow. He could hear something howl in the distance. No, wait. He lifted his head, making an effort to listen more intently. There was something else going on. The shouts of men and women. The clanking of metal. Raymond forced his window open, ignoring its pleading protests. A cold gust of wind struck his face, making him shiver, but even so he could hear the guards yelling, Riders! Riders are coming! Thank you.